Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to be back with you all today, and um, thank you for your prayers and encouragement for my family in the season. Uh, still a hard road we're walking, but the Lord is with us. Uh, in the last couple weeks, Scott has begun a series on the foundations of Berean, walking through uh, what are some of those core things that we find in Scripture that define who we are and what we're about here. And I'm excited to listen to that series along with you in the weeks ahead. We're going to be intermixing for the next several weeks the end of the Gospel of Mark and the series that Scott is teaching. And uh, so if you would, please turn with me to the end of Mark chapter 15 this morning. Three weeks ago, we watched the royal son of David breathe his last on the cross and yield his life in death. We've just been singing about that in the last hymn. We saw the author of life slain at the hands of wicked men. You could also say it this way. We saw the beloved Son of God suffer the forsakenness that our sins deserve. As we return to Mark's gospel, we're going to turn now to the burial of Jesus and to those who served him in his ministry and after his death. Let's read our text in Mark chapter 15. I'll be beginning in verse 40 and then working down to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that she, he should have already died. And summoning a centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, your word is very precious to us. What would we do without your word, Lord? We would have no idea of what pleases you, what displeases you, we would have no idea of what you have done to deal with the things that we have done that displease you. Lord, we wouldn't know you without your word. So this morning we say thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would help us to be people who are students of your word. Always coming with curiosity and eagerness to hear the words from your lips. Help us this morning, Lord. Transform our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit through your word. To the glory of your Son, to your glory, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. 
Earlier in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, But even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that verse, if you take that by itself, you might draw the conclusion that Jesus was never served by anybody. Remember, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You might draw the conclusion that because of that, nobody ever served Jesus. He didn't let anybody serve him in any way because he only came to serve. That's one possible interpretation. One important rule as we approach any passage of Scripture is to know that not every possible interpretation is valid. Not every conclusion that we could possibly draw from every passage is true or right. Otherwise, Satan couldn't twist Scripture. We see Satan twisting Scripture as he tempts Jesus. Uh, Satan, you might say, was pulling the wrong thing out of those Bible passages, coming to wrong conclusions. So I want to bring it back to this specific case. Could we say that Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, that he was never served by anybody at any time. No, that's not true. And of course you know that I'm working in that direction. You you know that I'm pointing you in that way. Jesus was served. That's one of the striking things, that Jesus actually was served. And in our passage, we're going to see that Jesus, the great servant, is served. That's the main thing we're going to see here, that the great servant is served. So we work through these verses, we'll look at the female servants, we'll look at the courageous servant, and lastly we'll see the resting servant. Uh, We're introduced to a group of women in verse 40, I'll reread that verse. Uh, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Salome is another uh, of those women. Uh, They are watching the crucifixion from a distance. Now, we wouldn't have known they were there, except Mark tells us about them at this point, that they were at the site of the crucifixion. They were at a distance, and they were watching these horrific events play out. Uh, Verse 41 tells us some very interesting details about them. Uh, It says here, that they have followed Jesus since he was in Galilee. They have been followers of Jesus from back in his ministry in Galilee. Uh, So that's the first thing we see about them, that they are followers of Jesus, which is another way of saying that they are disciples of Jesus. Uh, The twelve apostles were all men, but that is not to say that only men followed Jesus. Many women followed him. Uh, Jesus taught these women. Uh, Think of the account of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, being taught by him, and he commends her for that. Uh, Jesus served and taught women. Uh, Mark tells us something that's even more striking here. It says that they ministered to him. That might catch us off guard. They ministered to him. And the word for ministered here is from the Greek verb diakoneo. Uh, and that means to simply to serve. 
Perhaps you hear the word we use, deacon, in that word. Well, that's where that word comes from. Deacons are servants. It's literally in the name. Now, these women were not deacons in an official sense. That office wouldn't come about until some years later. They're not deacons in that sense. Uh, But that takes nothing away from the fact that they served our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. They will not lose their reward. Now, how exactly did these women serve? Uh, Luke doesn't specify, or excuse me, Mark doesn't specify, but Luke does. Um, In Luke chapter 8, Luke makes a a comment about at least Mary Magdalene and some other women not mentioned in Mark, about the way they served Jesus in his ministry while he was in Galilee. Now, Matthew and uh, Mark, they bring this up. At this point, at the end, uh, Luke brings it up a little earlier. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 says, Soon afterward, Jesus, he, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news for the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, and from, uh, from whom seven demons had come out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. Here it is who provided for them out of their means. Uh, So the way that these women served Jesus is that they had financial resources. Perhaps it was family resources. However they had these resources, they used them to bless Jesus and his apostles. They financially provided for our Lord. That's the service that our Lord received, and we can assume he received it with gratitude. Uh, These women ministered materially to Jesus so that he and his apostles could minister spiritually to others. Now, it's it's interesting on the one hand because Jesus, as the Son of God, could have made stones into bread. He could have just made a provision like that. But that wasn't his Father's will. The miracle that he did in feeding 5,000 He could have just kept doing that. You know, he could have taken one loaf and made it into millions of loaves. You know, he could have provided for himself in that way. There's all sorts of ways that Jesus, as the Son of God, could have made bread. But he accepted the ministry of these women to him and to his apostles. He accepted uh, their provision in his ministry. and, And Mark makes a point out of it. Now, Some have argued that the Bible has a low view of women, and I could not disagree more. I would argue, on the contrary, that the Bible has the only sane understanding of men and women that's out there. As our society continues to melt away into gender insanity, we would do well to go back to the scriptures and learn at the feet of Jesus, just as Mary did. Now, these women that we see here, uh, they're going to be important for the rest of the gospel narrative. We're going to see them. We see them at the end of this passage. They're watching the crucifixion. We're going to see them at the tomb as well, uh, at the resurrection uh, in the next chapter. But that's one set of servants here. We see the the female servants. Next, I want to consider in our passage the courageous servant. Uh, And that courageous servant that I'm referring to is Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, I call him courageous because Mark says so in verse 43. I want to reread verse 42 and 43 here. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, what did he do? He took courage. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. So Mark points out that Joseph takes courage. You know, that's not the same impression that you get when you read John's account related to Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, In John chapter 19, verse 38, John says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. We get a little different feel if you were to just read John by himself. We might ask the question, is Joseph a coward or is he courageous? Uh, Scoffers will point at this and say, well, the Bible's contradicting itself. Uh, That's not true. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Uh, When you see something in Scripture where it seems like one book or one verse is saying one thing and another saying another, what that means is that we actually have to press in a little more, read a little more carefully, and let's give the biblical authors the benefit of the doubt. Let's give the word of God the benefit of the doubt and look for how it actually fits together because there really is no contradiction here. Now, I'll come back to that question. Is Joseph of Arimathea, is he a coward or is he courageous? I think the answer is both in that he's one and then the other. Uh, I believe we see him in Mark's gospel moving out of cowardice and into courage. We see that in our passage. In fact, if we were to just stay in Mark, uh, Mark 15.43 mentions that Joseph is a respected member of the council. Uh, So we see that he's respected by others. We'll return to that, but I just want to make a side comment here. It says that he's a member of the council. It is almost certainly the case that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. That is the body that has just sentenced Jesus to death. Which means that Joseph was probably, no, no, not probably, he was there that night. In fact, Luke tells us that he had not consented to their decision. So imagine that Joseph, a follower of Jesus, is present at the trial of Jesus from within the Sanhedrin. I can't imagine what that night was like for him. Uh, John is right. Joseph followed Jesus in secrecy because he was afraid. He, He didn't let other people know because he didn't want to lose the respect that he had. He was a respected member of the council. He was a a good man. Let's just be honest. Joseph was a a very good man. He had a lot of respect. And it seems like he didn't want to lose that respect that he had publicly. And so he, he didn't say anything. And he didn't say anything. And and when opportunities arose for him to say something, he, he didn't say anything. He valued that respect, uh, and he didn't want to lose it. The reality is that that is very tempting. Uh, I hate to admit to you that I have been guilty of the same thing. Perhaps you can relate. I can think of multiple times in my life where I valued public respect more than doing what I thought and what probably was what God was calling me to do. Uh, It is so subtle and so tempting. 
God, help every one of us who stand courageously for Jesus in our day. Now, John writes his account after Mark writes his account. I think most likely John's gospel is written after Mark's gospel. So John has access to Mark's gospel. He knows what Mark has written. And I would say John is filling out the detail for us. So if we put those together, we get the picture of Joseph, who initially is fearful, but who steps out and takes courage. The word that's used here uh, by Mark uh, says that he, basically, he dared to act. Joseph dares to act. He, uh, it could be translated, he acts out rashly. He, he's been afraid, but not any longer. He's going to step out. He goes to Pilate, the man who has sentenced Jesus to death, and he asks for his body. Now, Pilate's surprised to find that he has died. Uh, Jesus, in command of his own life, breathes out his last. Let's, he lays his life down. Uh, Jesus uh, has died at this point. Joseph goes and he asks. I just want to say, my brothers and sisters, that this is a change of heart. For Joseph of Arimathea, even if it's just the start, it is a change of heart. And that, that's a miracle. Uh, you may feel a mile away from where you ought to be in your courage for the Lord in our day. You might feel like you are about as far as you could be. Uh, I want to encourage you to pray to the Lord that he would help you be courageous for him. He is delighted to answer that prayer. You know, you may never have the boldness of the Apostle Peter. Not everybody in Peter's day was, and neither did they need to be. Pray that God would make you courageous for him according to the gifts that he has given you. Now, although Joseph was initially afraid, he stepped out to be associated with Jesus. And he served Jesus even after Jesus' death. And his service is very precious. If we compare what's taking place here to what we see elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it is a very loving act that Joseph carries out. You can think about the end of 1 Samuel. After Saul has gone to battle with the Philistines, he's been overcome, he's been slain at the hand of the Philistines, and his sons have been killed as well. Then they, they take a step further. They want to shame him. They behead Saul, maybe his sons as well. We know at least they behead Saul. They take his bodies, his body and his son's bodies, and they tie them up to a wall. They parade his armor around in the house of the gods, and they, they, they tie their bodies up publicly. Oh, look at the scary men who harassed the Philistines. They're mocking and shaming Saul and his sons. And some of the men of valor in uh, Jabesh-Gilead, they hear about this, and they go by night into enemy territory, and they take those bodies down, and they bring them home, and they bury them. Or you can think of the disciples of John the Baptist. After he has run the course of his ministry, after he's been faithful to the end, and beheaded for the lust of a perverse man, John's disciples go, and they take his body, and they bury him. That is an act of love and honor. And Joseph carries that out for our Lord. He takes him down from the cross. He goes and buys a new linen shroud. He's not going to take some old t-shirt or something. He, he goes and spends money to cover the tortured body of his Lord. He brings him down and he 
lays him to rest in his own tomb. It says a, a tomb cut out of rock. It's not a cheap tomb. He takes the Lord and he puts him probably in the tomb that Joseph had planned for himself to be buried in. And so the son of David is buried in the city of David. We hear about that uh, so often in, in the historical narratives that the, the kings of Israel are buried in Israel, the, the kings of Judah are buried in Jerusalem. And so we have been introduced to the son of David in the Gospel of Mark. And we see that the royal son is buried in the royal city. Uh, we've, we've considered now this courageous servant. I want to turn our attention now to the resting servant. Here we see that the son of David is laid to rest. I think it's striking that when the apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church about the aspects of the gospel that he has received, that he has entrusted to others. In that list, he speaks in 1 Corinthians 15 of the death of Jesus, that according to the scriptures, Jesus died. And that he was buried. And that in accordance with the scriptures, he rose from the dead. It's interesting that the burial of Jesus makes the list, if you will, that it's mentioned uh, there when Paul is telling the Corinthians uh, about the gospel. Uh, the, the burial of Jesus, I don't think it necessarily carries the same theological weight that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus does, but it's not a throwaway fact either. It is important. Uh, first of all, one of the things that the death of Jesus or excuse me, the burial of Jesus communicates to us is that he truly died. Jesus did truly die. Uh, it's almost too shameful to even repeat, but in the last century, there were liberal theologians who tried, they were trying to explain away the resurrection. How We don't believe in the resurrection. How can we come up with some way to make the resurrection palatable to modern man? And they came up with the most ludicrous explanations I've ever heard for anything. They said, well... Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just pretended to die, or he fainted, or he swooned. And then they put him in the tomb, and then three days later, he got the stone away, and he came out, and see, he didn't actually die, and he didn't actually rise. That, 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 that's what modern man can accept. We can accept that. We can't accept what the Bible says about Jesus dying and raising from the dead. How foolish. How blasphemous. If there was ever a heresy in the history of the church, that's a heresy. Jesus did actually die. As much as it blows the categories of our mind that the author of life somehow could die, he did. Jesus died and he was buried. So that's at least one aspect of the significance to the burial of Jesus. I do think there's more. I think there's more to the significance and, and there's more than even what I'm going to say this morning, I am sure. And you can continue to think about it. But I think there's at least one aspect of significance to the burial of Jesus. Uh, and, and that is the fact that he is in the tomb on the Sabbath. Uh, Andrew Peterson, a modern songwriter, he wrote a song called God Rested. And he emphasizes in that song that on the seventh day, God rested. 
And then he connects that to the fact that Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath. That is true. He, Jesus had completed his work on the cross. If you will remember, in his crucifixion, we see in John's Gospel that Jesus says, It is finished. There was a work that the Son of Man was sent to do. He was sent to serve a rebellious and sinful and fallen world. And the way that he would serve us is by coming and living a perfect life and dying for us. He served us in a way we could never serve ourselves. He did the work. He completed it. And then he rested from it. God made the world in seven days. And on the seventh day, he rested. The Lord Jesus completed his work. And then in that tomb, on the seventh day, his body rested from the labor he had done. So we see here that the servant rests. We've seen the female servants, the courageous servants, and now the resting servant. I do have a final question for you. It's a two-part question that I want to end on today. Uh, In light of this passage, I want to ask you, do you know how to serve and to be served? I don't, it's a simple question. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I want to ask it again. Do you know how to serve and to be served? Now, we live in a society that says, serve me. And I would say that human beings, we come pre-programmed to think that we are the center of the universe. That this whole world is out there to make me happy. We all come with a a king complex, thinking that we're the king of this world. And our culture certainly doesn't help to dissuade us from that. Uh, That doesn't stand up when we come to the scriptures, does it? I mean, when you read the Bible, there is a radical call to think of others and to serve others. The Bible teaches it so often because, as it turns out, we're so hard of hearing. Do you know how to serve others? We can all grow in that. The second part of that question, I think, is actually really important, too. Do you know how to be served by others? Now, serving others, myself, I I find that, not that I always do it well, but I find that far easier to do than the second part. Uh, I have a, a painful story And I just have to tell it because it's so terrible, but it's so good in its own right. Uh, I don't know if I've shared this before or not. Um, When I was in Bible college, uh, I had worked as a machinist for three years and saved up a lot of money. And a lot of money. (laughs) I went to Bible college. And you know what? It didn't get me too far. By the second year, I was all out of money, scraping by. And... uh, you know, when you grow up, you realize, like, you have to pay your own bills. It actually costs something to go to the dentist. You learn all those hard life lessons. But I, I needed some dental care, and I had no money to pay for my own dentistry. And I heard about a, a dentist who had, like, a mobile RV van, mobile dental clinic, and he would volunteer his time to, to go with a, a team of hygienists who were also volunteering to give dental service to people, help people with their teeth cleaning and some cavities, those kinds of things. And I, I heard about it, and I thought, oh, that sounds great. I, free dental care, that's, that's phenomenal. And so, but to, to 
take part in that, I had to uh, had to sign up through a ministry that was connected with the church that that ministry was a part of, which was the same as my Bible college. And so I had to go to the, the ministry fair that had it and sign up uh, on that day. And I can't quite describe to you what I felt on the day when I turned up at the ministry fair and saw my underclassmen who were serving at the ministry tables. And I had to, to go up to them and sign up to receive ministry as these classmates of mine were there working the tables. They were the servants, and I was the one who needed to be served. Oh, I, it just gives me, still gives me a little shivers. You know, like it just, I, I didn't relish the experience. You might say that. But today, I love that. I love that day that the Lord in his providence led me to that moment. Because the Lord used that to show a spotlight on my heart. I had so much pride in being a servant. Being a servant was like a badge to me. And I took pride in that. And when it came to the point that I had to be served, especially by my peers, that was so hard. It was so difficult for me to humble myself to go up to that ministry desk and say, I need help. It is not easy. The the Bible is brutally honest with humanity and with our condition. And in some ways, the the Christian life begins with the acknowledgement that we need help. There's nothing we can do to deal with our own sin. There's really nothing we can do do to repay God or to get ourselves back into good graces. If we are going to be saved, it is going to be at the service of the Son of Man. And that is what he has done. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. You know, God didn't make us to to live our Christian lives in isolation where we provide everything we need for ourselves. God, in his wisdom, put us together in a church family. And in his wisdom, he has put you together in this church family. It's okay to be needy. It's okay to go to a brother and a sister and share your need and ask for help. Uh, We see from this passage that Jesus, the great servant, was served by others. If our Lord could receive the service of others, we can too, as his followers. In the the next week, Scott's going to continue on with his series uh, and the foundations of Berean. And when we come back uh, to Mark in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to see that as the Lord has been laid to rest in the tomb, uh, we're going to return to see a new day, a new day in this creation where absolutely everything will be changed forever. I'm excited to be there with you in Mark 16. I know... Mark 15 has been a really hard chapter. Let's be honest, Mark 14 has been a pretty hard chapter. But there is joy. Let's let's come back together in a few weeks in Mark 16. Let's pray. Father, what could we ever say to express the gratitude we have for what you have done for us in sending your Son? 
where we do say thank you, Lord. Again and afresh, we commit our lives to you, to the one who is worthy of everything we are and everything we have. Lord, so many of us are are walking through different challenges and trials and times that we don't understand your providence. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you and to walk as your children and to wait on you. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.